Well, hey, good evening. Welcome to Young Adults. I'm excited that you're here tonight. Uh, you know, we're in the middle of a series. We're walking through the book of James, and it's called Faith That Works, because James is all about a practical faith that you can live out right now. And that's why I'm excited for this series and this message, um, because that's what Young Adults is all about. What Young Adults exists for is for young adults, people in their, their, their late teens, their 20s, their 30s, that can walk together as we live out our faith together in a very practical way. And that's why we have things like small groups that meet together and talk about God's word every single week. Um, we, have, we have times together like this where we get to hear God's word, why we get together and worship, why we go out to campuses and try to reach people because that's part of walking with Jesus. Well, tonight, uh, my message, I would entitle it, Live What You Believe, to live what you believe. Because I think there's a lot of things we might believe but we don't practically go and do. Um, I remember when I was uh, probably maybe three years ago, and I had started visiting uh, my like primary care physician. That's a doctor, uh, for those of you that don't know. When you start getting close to 30, you start thinking about things like, what's my primary care physician? Do I, do I have one? Do I have a doctor I can call, or do you just go to the ER every time? And I went to my primary care physician, and, and uh, I've told the story about like, my knee was busted up and I went to him and he was like, how old are you in a 30? And he was like, that's just kind of being 30. And I was like, man, that's a bummer. Um, but one of the next times I went to him, I've had like a chronic stomach ache since I was like 20. Um, and it's just like, it flares up sometimes and then I'll just eat a little bit better and it does a little bit better. And normally it's just, uh, it's an issue. And uh, I went to my doctor and my wife was like, you know how you've had this stomach problem for like, 17 years, you should probably go and talk to someone. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go talk to my doctor. So I brought it up and he was like, okay, we'll, we'll do some, you know, some blood tests, we'll, we'll, we'll look around. And he did that and he was like, you didn't really see anything that should be like of note. Um, what's your diet like? And I explained to him like, you know, this is what my diet looks like. And he kind of said, you know, um, the human body probably wasn't meant to have the amount of sugar that most people eat. Um, some people just can't really digest it well. And when he started talking about this, I stopped paying attention. I was like, whatever, sugar's fine. Everybody else eats it, everybody else feels fine. That was like in March of one year. The whole year came around and like part of my New Year's resolution, I'm like, I'm gonna cut sweet tea, cut soda, cut any kind of sugary drink. And I was like, well, wouldn't you know it? My stomach starts feeling better. This is wild. And so I go to my doctor and I completely forget about it. Like I'm there and he's like, hey, how are things from last year? He's like kind of turned away from me in that little, little stool chair thing and he's typing in the computer and he sees like, oh, you have like stomach issues. Has that gotten any better? I'm like, it has. And he's like, well, what's changed? I'm like, I stopped drinking soda. I stopped drinking so much sugar. And he just kind of looks over his shoulder and he goes, crazy how that works, doesn't it? It was not new information, it was not a surprise, it wasn't something different, it was just that I needed to do what I knew to be right. I think if I polled most of you and asked the question, hey, is there a right way to live when it comes to eating food, exercise, activity level, you would say yes, there is a right way to live. But when you actually look at what all of us do, do we actually go and work out the, the way that we should? Are we active in the way that we should? And do we eat the foods that we should and shouldn't? The answer is probably no, because there's a gap between what we know is right and what we choose to do. And that extends even into our faith. We live a certain way, but we might believe 
something else. You might fully believe that this is God's word. It is God's gift to us. It is how we should live. If someone were to walk up to you and go, hey, how do I have eternal life? You'd be like, let me point to this, to, you, to Romans. Like, this is the right place to be. You, they might be able to ask you any question under the sun and you're like, oh, I've got it. I've got the answer for you. But when it comes to practically living it out for ourselves, it might be a little bit different. And that's what James talks about today. I've loved going through James because it's so practical. We talked about what to do in trial. We've talked about how to ask God for wisdom. Tonight we're in James 1, 19 through 25. And all the verses will be up on the screen. You can also go to the Bible app, go to events, and follow along with the message, with the notes, and with the verses right there. We're in James 1, 19 through 25, and the NIV, it says this. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Let's pray and then we'll get into God's word tonight. God, we love you. I'm thankful for this group. God, that you've selected to be here tonight, um, that need to hear your word, and God, I pray that I would communicate it, but that you would impact hearts in the way that only you can, that you would show us who you are and show us where we stand in comparison to you. Father, we love you, we thank you in your holy name, amen. When you look at James 1, 19, he starts off by saying, my dear brothers and sisters. So there can't really be much of a question of who it is that James is talking to. James is talking to a group of believers. He's talking to a group of people that would have called themselves Christians. They would have known Jesus to be Lord. So when James is talking here, he's not talking to people at large. He's talking to a church. He's talking to people who would have claimed Christ as their savior, as their master, and as their Lord. So he's talking to these people and he says, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And we hear that and that's good practical advice. Hey, don't be quick to speak, be slow to speak, and be slow in your anger. And you hear that and you're like, okay, he, he, James is super practical. So some things in James, it feels like he moves from thing to thing really quickly. And, 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 and even tonight, it, it kind of feels like these selection of verses feels like a couple of different thoughts because he talks about like the way that you speak, don't be angry, anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God, get rid of moral filth, accept the word that's planted in you, don't listen, just do it. Um, but if you just listen to it, you're kind of like a person who looks in the mirror. And it's like, he, he's kind of interjecting all these thoughts one after another. But if you put in context of what he's talking about, he's not just saying in general, like in your conversations with people, be slow to speak. He's saying, in, sorry, when it comes to listening, he's saying listen to the word of God. That when we are speaking to people, what comes out of our mouths naturally isn't what honors God. And to take that another step, what 
emotion comes for us in anger is not what produces glory to God. And anger is one of those weird things because like the Bible says in a couple different spots like Jesus was angry, like God got angry. Um, There's a verse that says in your anger do not sin and it's like you can be angry and it's not sin. Anger's an emotion. Anger's something that God gave us as an emotion. The same as being tired and sad and, and happy and joyful. Like it encapsulates, it's part of that emotion. But I think sometimes we have to look at anger and, and kind of parse through what is this anger? Is this anger righteous anger or unrighteous anger? Is this anger that produces the, the goodness, the glory of God? Or is this anger that doesn't do any good? What does your anger produce? Is your anger something that you look back on and you're like, man, I made some mistakes, I regret some things that I said? Does your anger produce more anger? Does it produce gossip? Think about the last time that you were angry at something or someone. What were the next actions that came from you? What were the next words that came out of your mouth? Did it produce bitterness? They got that thing that I wanted and they didn't work as hard as I did so now I'm upset with them. It's not really their fault but I'm bitter towards them. Maybe you got angry that a group of friends hung out together and you know they hung out together because they posted on Instagram, they put, put it on their TikTok, they put it on, you can't put it on your TikTok, they put it on their Snapchat, they put it on you see their, their location and you're like, all of them are together and I'm not. Didn't get the invite, so I feel isolated. Maybe it was anger that produced outrage. Maybe you flew off the handle because of something small. Maybe you, you got harsh. Maybe your opinion came out a little bit too strong. Maybe it showed some other untethered emotions that you had. What did your anger produce? Because anger is not necessarily a bad thing. Anger, anger can be a good thing. Anger is something God gave us as an emotion that helps us focus and narrow our mindset, right? Think about it in this situation. If you were angry because someone harmed one of your friends and it was righteous for you to go and right that wrong, you get angry about it. You get focused on it. You get emotion that's narrow towards that. I have four kids, and sometimes those kids do things that endanger themselves. I have a a three-year-old that when he learned to walk, he also learned to open doors and go outside. And he would just go outside. We had a neighbor brought him back to us at one point in the middle of the day, right next door. And we were like, we didn't know you left the house. We didn't know you were up from a nap. And we installed some security to, to make sure that didn't happen. But the anger that I felt because he was in danger fo- focused and changed things so that I would not allow him to be in danger anymore. Anger is not necessarily a bad thing. But I think there's some things that we need to check in ourselves to make sure that our anger isn't sinful, isn't wrong. Is your anger selfish? Are you in your anger upset because something was morally wrong and you want to fix it or are you upset because it wasn't your preference? 
because it wasn't what you expressed, what you wanted to happen? Are you upset because it wasn't your preference? Is your anger selfish? Is your anger quick? Is your anger quick? Is the first things that come out of your mouth or come to your mind whenever you're upset what come out of your mouth? Because they're not normally good. The first things that come to mind are rarely the right things to say out loud. The funny thing that I think is gonna be hilarious normally hurts feelings. The thing that I think is gonna be, that person just needed to hear it in the moment. It's not normally right. Or sometimes if you're on the other side of the coin, sometimes you get angry and instead of punishing them by saying, hey, you did wrong, you go, you know what, I'm not gonna talk to you anymore. I'm gonna be withholding from you. I'm gonna be bitter towards you. I'm gonna hurt you without you even knowing it. I'm gonna talk about you behind your back. The anger that we normally have is not going to produce the righteousness of God. Is your anger quick? And does your anger produce regret? Think about the last times that you were angry, that you were truly upset at someone or something, and the actions that happened after it. Do you look back and go, I got angry, and I made some mistakes, and I said some things that I never ever should have said. Our anger a lot of times comes from a place of lack of control. Because you don't control something, you get angry about it. You don't know how to react. You don't know what to say. So because it wasn't my choice, but because I wasn't involved in the decision-making process, because it wasn't what I would have done, I don't go, oh, I assume the best about you. I get angry. We get upset. And what James is telling us here is whether it's your anger or your speech, you could replace almost anything that we talked about just now with speech. Does your speech produce regret? Is your speech quick? Does your speech just show how selfish you are? Do you put other people down so that you look a little bit better? Do you gossip? Do you have foul language that comes out of your mouth? Do your speech and your anger honor God? Because what James says here, he gives a warning. Hey, these two things, your speech and your anger, They can be red flags. So hit pause and be quick to listen. And what he's saying here is not just in general listening. He's saying you should listen to the word of God. You should try to remember what does God have to say about this person that I'm talking to? What does God have to say about what's getting ready to come out of my mouth? Be quick to listen. I'm gonna ask you this. Are you a good listener Do you listen to people well? Do you show up to a conversation and go, hey, how are you? I accidentally did this to someone the other day. I asked them a question. Hey, how long have you and your wife? And then, oh, the line's empty. And I went up there and they they were like, 12 years. (laughs) Sorry, total accident. But I realized in that moment, I, I, I see my own needs on top of their response. Are you a good listener to the people around you? Because if you struggle to listen to people, the chances are you struggle to listen to God. If you struggle to hear, process, and respond in an appropriate way with individuals, you probably struggle to do that with your creator. How are you as a listener? In listening, we communicate the other person is important. Their voice 
is valuable and I need to hear what you are saying. So why do we need to be quick? How does that practically help us to be quick to listen? I think practically it gives you time to pray. It gives you time to pray. If you're listening to someone and they're explaining, sometimes you'll talk to people, especially when you start diving into what God's word tells you to do to interact with people and you start having spiritual conversations with the people that are around you and you start asking them deeper questions and hey, how was your day? And you go, hey, how are you actually doing? And then they start actually telling you and you're like, I've never dealt with this problem before. I don't know how to handle it. You know what you can do in that moment? You can petition the God who created you and the God who created them to say, God, I just need a word. I just need something to respond to them, to help them, guide them to you. I don't have, what it, I, I don't have the counseling degree. I don't have what it takes to say to this person what they need to hear. And God, you created them. You know the problem that they're talking about. So guess what? You, you know what they need to hear. Can you just make me conduit? Can you just make me obedient in this moment, and you'd be surprised, once you start doing that with people, you'll say stuff that you're like, I, I don't, I remember that in the Bible, but I don't know that I remember that in the Bible. You know what I'm saying? We can pray and ask God for help. One of the other things that it does for us, it distinguishes my thoughts from God's thoughts. When I'm talking to you, especially when it gets to a deeper level, you know what you don't need? You don't need my opinion. You don't need, hey, I've got this problem in my life. Well, let me tell you what I think is gonna fix it. You know what you need to be? You need me to be in that moment. You need me to be a conduit of God's word to you. And I wanna be able to see the difference and go, your decisions, your choices are not what I would've done. And I'm upset and you hurt people, but you know what? You need the love of God right now. You need the hope that Christ offers you. So I'm gonna put my opinion to the side and I'm gonna share this. The third thing that I would think that it, would, that it offers is an interjection from the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, it talks about how one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to remind you of scripture. The Holy Spirit's job is to remind you of scripture. Isn't that incredible? We have this helper the Bible says that is there to help you in a situation when you're looking and listening, go, hey, this is from the Bible. You should listen to it. You should keep it in your mind. You should repeat it. But when I am quick to speak, I leave no room for the Holy Spirit to interject in my mind. When I show up to a conversation and I have all the answers and I go, yeah, be quiet, Holy Spirit, I got this. And I just start speaking I can quiet the Holy Spirit in that moment, and guess what? What I have to say is of no value. We need the Holy Spirit to interject. And the last thing is it helps us do is it helps us process our emotions. There are times when people say things for whatever reason, based on something with your past, based on something with someone else earlier in the day, based on the morning that you had that someone can say something to you and it evokes an emotional response. And guess what? That's not necessarily their fault. So I wanna be obedient to you and to God and serve you in God 
And I don't want to give you the first reaction that comes out of my mouth because it's not gonna be God glorifying. It's not gonna produce the righteousness of God. So you know what's gonna help me? I want something sharp and hurtful to come off of my tongue. I'm gonna be slow to speak. I'm gonna be quick to listen. What does God's word have to say about me? What does it have to say about them? So point number one tonight is to humbly listen for God. How do we live out what we believe? We humbly listen for God. So he says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Why? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. We hope by our emotions, by our, the things that upset us and by our words, that we would produce the righteousness of God. You, if you're a believer, you probably want that in and around you. But verse 21 says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Now, when you see therefore, it's like, so this happened, so next you go and do this. It's not just, hey, get this done. Now, therefore, this is the way that you should go and live. What he's arguing here for is that we shouldn't be people that just live and are known for and are fine living in the sin that we currently have. We should be people that as we walk with God, he kindly and sweetly shows us, hey, I love you. Can I show you just a little piece of how you've been disobedient? And you may not even know it, but I want you to go ahead and start following me in this area. And we have opportunities all the time to start following Christ and to start being obedient in new ways. And we shouldn't be people that are known for the old way of living, the moral filth, the evil that's so prevalent. You don't have to go far to find people that live in an evil way. But then he says, humbly accept the word planted in you. Humbly accept the word that's planted in you. God's solution to anger and the speech that comes quickly is not self-control. God doesn't say, hey, get to a place where you are really strong, you are really able, you just figure it out yourself. His solution to um, a tongue that says what it wants to and anger is humility. That's such an interesting response. I did a Google search, how do you deal with anger? And a couple of websites came up and some of them had to do with counseling and therapy and some of them just said, hey, breathe, count to 10, which that might be a piece of what's biblical to take time to not speak. But some of it said to figure out what your triggers are. Some of it said to minimize what those things are. Some of it said to separate yourself from what those things are. And God's response, what James says here, is not to just minimize, is not to just walk away from whatever it is that makes you angry or makes you have words that you regret. What he says here is to have humility. An attitude of humility says, I need help. An attitude of humility is not one that comes natural to you and I. An attitude of humility 
is something that is going to show the people that are around you, you're different. It's a prideful heart that says what comes naturally to my mouth is good. What comes naturally to my words is right. What comes naturally to my anger, I'm gonna go ahead and give it full vent. That's not, that's natural for us. It's easy for us to go ahead and do. But what God calls us to do is have an attitude of humility. And this is the gospel. This is how we found Christ. You didn't find Christ by saying, God, I've got most of life figured out. If you can just make me a little bit better, that would be awesome. His attitude is to humbly accept the help that comes from God. For we're all sinners, and we had death waiting for us. We were morally bankrupt, moral failures that God chased down. And it says that the free gift of God is available to anyone who will receive it. And you don't get that gift by working your way up to the top and saying, God, I've earned this gift. The gift is one that you say, God, I don't have anything to offer you back. He says, I know. I still love you. I still value you. And that's not just the attitude that we first accept Christ. That's the attitude of a Christian. God, I need you every single day. God, my speech is not where it should be. God, my anger and my emotions are not where they should be. So what we do is we show up and we're humble. We're teachable. We're needy. I think some of the problem is when we show up and we think we have all the answers. Jonathan Edwards was a, was a, a pastor and he, he, he studied what happened in revival. And what happened in revival is that people would show up and they would say, God, I need you. God, we, we as a people need you. And one of the things that he found consistently, he was a researcher and a historian, that shut down movements of God was pride. He said there were three things that he looked for. He said that pride is argumentative. When pride, when, what you need to look for is is pride argumentative? Am I argumentative? Do I, do I find the things that I think are right and I argue them into the ground? Not just the major things, but the minor things as well. That I could argue things that matter, things that don't. Why? Because I think that I'm right. Are you argumentative? Pride has a weird relationship with confrontation. He said that, that confrontation happens when it's enjoyed a little too much or it's totally avoided because we have pride, because we don't want to go ahead and confront that person or we do it and it's like, man, it feels good to confront. And what Jonathan Edwards said is that pride should be approached with tears. That's not pride. That's when you have the best for that person in mind and you hope for them, so you confront them and it hurts, and you don't enjoy it, but it's for their best. And he said the last thing that he would look for, for someone that might have pride, is are they chronically unhappy? Are they chronically unhappy? Do you just look at life and it's like, well, that didn't go how I thought it would, so that's, that's a bummer, and this is a net negative, because this happened, and you just go through life and it's like everything is a negative because, why? It's all about you. 
It's about your control. It's about what you wanna see happen. And your pride is what holds you back from truly seeing what God has for you. So he says to humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. What I love about that is it doesn't say like the word that you studied. It doesn't say the word that you figured out on your own. It says that the word that was planted in you. That's not something you can do yourself. One of the things that's always an encouragement to me is 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says that we were a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone away and the new has come. I can't do that myself. I'm not able. I I need someone else to come in and do that for me. That's God implanting his word in you. That's him giving you the Holy Spirit so that you can be a new and different person. You're unable to do that on your own. It's planted in you. Charles Spurgeon, when he's talking about this text, he said it's like an acorn. We have some big oak trees outside and they're acorns that fall along the sidewalk. And in those acorns is everything that's needed for there to be a mighty oak. And in that mighty oak is everything that's needed to plant a forest of trees. But it all starts with one little acorn. And I think sometimes we don't fully see the harvest of what God has for us, the fullness of what God wants for your life because we look at the acorn and we go, oh, that's nothing. And we don't water it. And we aren't faithful. And we aren't obedient with little so God doesn't do much with us. And we belittle it. And we don't feed it so nothing happens. And it's just like it was when we talked about diet. We're unwilling to make even small changes so we don't see small changes. And you know that with your diet, but if you started making small changes over a long period of time, big changes would happen. In the same way that seed can be small things, obedience to God is never small. Obedience to God is always big, and it's always important, but it starts small. This word that's planted in you when you accepted Christ, Christ came, in, came inside of you and changed you. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you and everything is different now, but you can still choose to quiet that. And I think that's why some of us live a life that we go, God, I read things in Acts and in the Bible that I don't see that are happening in my life. It's because we are not humbly accepting the word of God that lives inside of us. And we choose not to obey it. So what's your relationship to God's word? Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know what that verse illustrates is that everywhere else besides God's word is darkness. And God's word is the one that brings light. My second point is this. Filter your life, your thoughts, your words, everything that's external through God's word. What's your relationship to God's word? I want to, in humility, have a desperation for God's word, a need for God's word that I can't explain besides I was lost and broken, he came and found me and he wants to give me new life and this is what brings it to me. God has a life for me that is so good and is so incredible that when I don't crack this open, 
I'm saying, God, that's not important. I don't care about what you have to say to me. Are you desperate for God's word? Um, in 1944, World War II um, was beginning to end, and um, the U.S. government um, gave a man named Ansel Keys um, the task of figuring out how to help the nutrition of men coming home from war because the MREs, the ready-to-eat meals, weren't as readily available. They didn't know much about nutrition um, on the front lines then, and food was just kind of what you could figure out on the front lines, so they were dealing with that. They were also dealing with prisoners of war, and they said, we, we're gonna have millions of men coming home, and we need to figure out how we're gonna help them uh, reassimilate into to regular life. So this man named Ansel Keys was a psychologist. There were nutritionists um, involved, and they took 36 men uh, to Minneapolis, and they started what they called the Minneapolis Starvation Experiment. And over the course of one year, these 36 men um, would walk 22 miles a day, do 25 hours of work a week, and then they would eat a staggering, dropping level of calories every single month. And um, they were just seeing what happened to their bodies, what happened to their minds, their psychology, um, but also how do we wean them back to regular life. And in this book that I read on this experiment, um, they almost talked about how when you have a situation where you don't have something and you are in great need of it, when it's reintroduced, you still have the desperation from when you didn't have it. They interviewed one of uh, the, the men who went through the experiment's children, and they said, for my, my father's whole life, he was desperate for food. He couldn't get enough because he went through a year where each day had less food than the, the previous. So his relationship with food changed. He was desperate for food. He needed food. Why? Because he was desperate for it because he once didn't have it. I think we have to look at our relationship to God's word with desperation. I think if we're truly desperate for it, if we truly see this as what gives us life, you will ingest it like you're desperate for it. You will treat it every day like this is bread. This is what will give me life because who was I before Christ? I was lost. I was headed for hell. I had no hope. And God gave that to me. So I'm gonna revisit it every day with desperation. What's your relationship with God's word like? Do you hide it in your heart? Do you memorize it? Are you familiar with it? Do you enjoy it? What's your relationship with God's word? My third point is to do what God's word says to do. To do what God's word says to do. He says, do not merely, in verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do it, do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, and they will be blessed in what they do. There's a paradox with mirrors. There's a true paradox with mirrors. I read about this today. 
that mirrors are one of those things that when you pass by one, you kind of can't help but give yourself a glance, right? When you pass one of those mirrors in the back hallway or when you're washing your hands in the restroom, you look at yourself. You can't help it. But there's also the other side of a paradox is that sometimes we don't want to look in a mirror because we're afraid of what we'll see. And what, what James is arguing for here is that God's word is this mirror. God's word is not meant to be looked at as a pair of binoculars that I look at you and go, you know what, I read this and I see how you live your life, so I'm seeing how you don't match what God's word says. It's meant to be a reflector so that when we read it, it's showing me who God is, but it's also showing me me. So I would look at it and go, I don't do that, and I need to do that. God, I wanna humbly accept, you, you let me read this today, I wanna humbly accept the word of God that you've planted in me. One of my favorite times, I remember I was standing right over there and I was talking to Andrew Albritton. He's a professor at Missouri State. He preaches sometimes here. We we're having a casual conversation and he stopped and he looked over his shoulder at his wife and he said, I'm not gonna say that. And he moved along with the conversation and I said, what was that? <laughs> what just happened? And he goes, uh, there's this verse that says, speak evil of no man, so I'm just trying to do better at it. I was like, What? He was like, I read it in the Bible, I saw that I do that, and I'm making a pointed effort to stop doing that. Incredible. But it, was, it struck me, it caught me by surprise. Why? Because we don't do that. The Bible said just a minute ago that it's common. We see it all over the place. But we all wanna be surrounded by people that are kind and loving and filled with the fruit of the Spirit, but we're afraid to finally go, God, this is what your word says, so I'm gonna do it. And I think we miss out on what the blessing of God is. The end of that verse says that if you do what God's word is, you will be blessed in what you do. God's word is a mirror. Let it read you. Even if you go, man, I don't wanna look in the mirror today because I'm afraid of what I'll see, to look at it and go, God, I, I need to see what's in this mirror because I want my life to not just be a mirror for me to see God's word. I want my life to be so reflective of what's in this book. When people see me, they see an image of God that I haven't created, I haven't done the work, you have changed me, so that when someone says, why, why is this community the way that it is? Why are, does your life look so selfless? You can say, well, it's not about me, I didn't do all that, I would have never done that, it wasn't my choice, it was God changing me, making me new. He implanted that in me, and he changed me. It's a mirror to help us, to grow us. And what's wild about this is that I think I've always read this as like, you look in the mirror, you go away, that's a foolish thing, it doesn't make any sense. Like when this was written, there probably wasn't even like an actual mirror, there were probably shiny things and like reflections that you would see yourself in. So it was, it was like, hey, you'd see yourself and then you go away and a couple weeks later you come back and see yourself. Now we have a different perception of what mirrors are. But, but the, the thing that, that gets me is in verse 24 he says, whoever, sorry, verse 25 he says, and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard. 
Our tendency is to forget the truth. Our tendency is to think that my opinion, my heart, my mind matter more than what God's word says. But James is like, you can't have it that way. You can't forget what God's word says. Continue to do it. Bring the mirror with you. Meditate on God's word. Let it be a mirror all day long. God, I want my words to honor you today. Is my speech honoring God all day long? Not just in the morning, fills my tank, and by the end of the day, I'm empty. It is a moment by moment. God, I wanna honor you with everything that I am. And I think when we look at people, as people in their 20s, 30s, teens, I think we look at people that have been walking with God for a long time and we go, I want that faith. I wanna know what God's voice sounds like. I wanna be able to, to, to do great things for God. But we won't just walk with him daily. And we miss out on what James calls the blessing in what we do. You wanna see God move in your life? You wanna see God do big things? Look at God's word and do what it says and watch God provide, watch God be good, watch God be faithful to you in times that you never would have assumed that he could do that, watch him be faithful.